Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Reframers Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Zach. And I'm Erin. Hey, everybody. This is Cassie. Thanks so much for joining us. And this is kind of our first like real episode for season two of the Reframers. And we are very excited uh, to be back with you guys. We hope everybody listening um, had a great, you know, November, December, honestly, and January. We're back now. We're ready to give you some more great content. And Aaron, maybe you can introduce the audience to what we are going to be talking about today. Definitely. We are so excited to be jumping into our content for season two. We did do a little season two update. So if you haven't had a chance to go listen to that, uh, listen to that. It's pretty quick, but we're going to just hit the ground running today with a very relevant and kind of difficult topic. We're going to be talking about January 6th and the insurrection that happened then, and then the congressional investigation that has been happening for about the past six months. You may have seen this. It's very much in the news right now of what's going on with that investigation, the things they're looking at, the people they're talking to. So we kind of wanted to just go through that to let you know what's happening and then discuss it. Definitely going to appreciate this because I have kept up with this very minimally. We talked about this last year when we were still tossing around the idea of a podcast and it was an emotional conversation last year. So we've had a year of space, a year of new information coming out. This will be an interesting one. Hopefully we can add some value to this and I don't know, departisanize it a little bit, provide some good like context and some, you know, helpful, just helpful discussion. For reframers context, I live with Zach and he's been really excited and like did a bunch of research and said he's really looking forward to this one. And then Aaron jumped on looking very nervous and <laughs> concerned and feeling close to the edge already. Maybe I shouldn't speak for you, but I just like that's a it's a good place to be like to say honestly like I'm feeling x y or z going into this conversation I'm not entering completely level-headed and comfortable yes that is definitely how I feel January 6th last year was a really 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 terrible day I felt really really terrible about it and I think the aftermath of it was really hard and even just looking into it to research for this it was kind of having many of those feelings again and being concerned about a lot of things. So yeah, it will be definitely will be good to talk about it, but it was funny. Zach texted that he was so excited to talk. and I was not feeling super excited to talk, but I do think it will be a good conversation. Yeah. I, and, and I'm excited because I think that there's a lot that is contained in this discussion. So basically when we say we're going to talk about January 6th, what we're you know referring to just as a quick little summary is last year, as the votes for the 2020 election were going to be certified um, by by the legislature, Trump was there in Washington D.C. and was giving a big rally, um, and this was after a couple months of basically him telling lies about what happened during the 2020 election and um, making a bunch of claims um, that he was then repeating on the day of the election, and during his speech as like the capstone, had said some comments that seemed to encourage the voters to go and, you know, storm the the Capitol building. It wasn't quite so explicit, but what he did say was, I want to just pull up the quote, we fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Um, so this is one of the things that that was kind of inciting to have then members of this, you know, rally, not all of them, but some of them 
go and actually storm the U.S. Capitol building to try to stop the certification of the votes from the states. So the states provide the votes. They certify all their state votes. Those votes are submitted to the legislature. The legislature then certifies the votes from the states. And so this um, basically insurrection or, or riot was in an effort to stop that process from happening. You know, so we can get into like kind of more of the why and why did people think that was going to actually be able to happen and all this stuff later. But um, that's kind of what happened on the day. And then resulting from that, you know, Trump obviously is not president anymore. So he, he lost, kicked off of Twitter, all the social media. And then in the months after that, there's been this founding of a congressional committee to investigate the events of that day, find any potential criminality, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of what the, what the events were of the day. I hope I did a fairly neutral job of explaining all that. Uh, I'd like some sign off that I did okay on that one. You took a difficult job of summarizing that. And I thought that was great. Thank you. Thank you. Me. Okay, good. We can, um, we yes. can proceed then from, from that <laughs> being our it. set of facts. <laughs> yeah. So, so people know when things, not even necessarily like this, but big events happen, say, for example, um, the Titanic or the Iran-Contra affair, sort of these really big political events. Congress has the power to investigate the event, see kind of what went wrong, if there was criminality, or if there's just policy that needs to be created based on what happened. Um, so these are also kind of investigations that Congress has done for presidential impeachments or other kinds of wrongdoing. You can use congressional investigations for a whole slew of things. And so there was initially, and we can talk about this more, um, the idea of having a bipartisan committee investigate January 6th, looking specifically at capital security for one, and then also if there was a more coordinated, organized event going on behind the scenes um, to actually have maybe not even the full violence, but just more of the intense aggressive action. And so they're looking at that and then also specifically criminality, the violence against Capitol Police officers or criminality of various other people who may have been involved in kind of putting the event together. And so there's a whole range of things that this investigation is charged to look at. And we just wanted to take a quick step back and give you some context on congressional investigations. So this is a little bit different than our normal, you know, what did the founders think? But I actually think it's really helpful to understand how this part of government works um, and to give us context to be able to analyze, you know, what the committee is doing right now. So I just wanted to give a little bit of information. The role of Congress to do investigations is not listed specifically in the Constitution. It's an implied constitutional power under Article One, And it's something that probably came over from the House of Commons, which is the British system. And it was something that existed there. Um, and you can see there's lots of founders who've made comments that is, it's very clear that they thought that congressional investigations was a job of Congress. Congressional investigations don't only help legislatures to make better policy decisions, but they can also uncover abuses of power and corruption. So a couple big examples. There was the Teapot Dome scandal. This is like one of the biggest ones that if you look up congressional investigations, you'll hear about. There was a Secretary of the Interior under President Harding who leased these Navy oil reserves in Teapot Dome, Wyoming to private oil companies at like these really low rates and without any competitive bidding. And so he ended up, there was an investigation and he ended up getting convicted of accepting bribes and removed from his post, which is the first time that a cabinet member, cabinet level person had actually been removed from their position. 
Another one I want to mention just because I think it's really fun is the Special Committee on Organized Crime and Interstate Commerce. This was in the 1950s, and this was an investigatory committee investigating organized crime in the United States, specifically gambling, but it also looked into bootlegging. It kind of, it was very much something that people in the United States were involved in. They televised all of the hearings. Frank Costello, who is a mobster, was called before Congress and gave testimony in front of Congress. And it actually led to a lot of um, empowerment of police departments to be able to fight these organized mob rings. And so these investigations can really lead to great policy and good changes. But I also want to mention that they can be used as a political partisan tool that cannot be helpful. So for example, also in the 1950s, there were the McCarthy hearings, which were named after one of the senators. And they were investigating different people who had suspected ties to communism, even based on small things they said or did. And it was really this big kind of witch hunt that caused a lot of problems for a lot of people and was widely seen as just being totally political and not actually helpful. So kind of want to give like the overview they, they can be used in great ways. And there is also sort of this political downside to them as well. Is the series of investigations that Congress did about the organized crime, is that where we get the RICO statutes from? Mm -hmm. So I think that did happen, but it may have even been before the congressional hearings. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that RICO came from those hearings. It was interesting when I was researching it because it said, surprisingly, there weren't a lot of policy changes from those hearings, but Mm -hmm. it raised tons of awareness across the country because they were so publicized. And that's what really made a difference is that these local police departments felt that they could actually have support in going after these mobsters and these organized crime rings in a way that they didn't before and had the support of the federal government to be able to do that. And so it did make a difference on that level. That's cool. So how would that relate to our current congressional hearing? Is it current? Is the January 6th one ongoing? Yes, it is. There's this great webpage. It has all of the information, including the scope, what they're allowed to do and what they're currently doing. So it has press releases of who they've called that day and who they who they have talked to. And I actually found when I was researching this, there is an overwhelming number of articles about what this committee is doing. It is actually hard to research it because everyone is writing about everything that's happening. So like one person gets called and there's like 10 articles on it. So I actually think this is a really good resource to condense it a little bit so that you actually know like what they're looking at. That actual current committee membership is only nine members. The chairperson is uh, Benny G. Thompson from Mississippi, and currently there are six Democrats and two Republicans on the committee. And I have some background on how we actually got to this place. Cass, do you have something? That's good. Background will help because I just want to make sure I understand. So slew of things happened on January 6, 2021. People were not okay with it. They said we should have a group of qualified folks look into this and what to what end is the goal to punish people if they need to be punished and, and kind of fighting those people is the goal to make legislation. We're, we're discussing that it might be both of those things. And then how did, how are there only like 13 or nine people on that committee? Is that, a, is that enough people? I have a lot of questions. <laughs> good, good questions. Yeah. Just scrolling down farther on the page, it, they have section three, which is their purposes. And basically they, they've identified three purposes and then there's some functions of how they're going to do those things. But this is a quote from the page. 
to investigate and report upon the facts, circumstances, and causes relating to the January 6th domestic terrorist attack upon the U.S. Capitol and relating to the interference with the peaceful transfer of power, as well as influencing factors that fomented such an attack on the American representative democracy while engaged in constitutional process. So that's part one, right? It's just like, let's gather all the information that we can leading up to what happened that day and on that day. Uh, purpose two, examine and evaluate the evidence developed by federal, you know, basically government agencies, state, local agencies regarding the facts and circumstances surrounding the attack on the Capitol and targeted violence and domestic terrorism relevant to such an attack. So that sounds more of like the criminality element of it. And then part three is to build upon the investigations of other entities and avoid unnecessary duplication of effort by reviewing investigations, findings, conclusions into the attack on the Capitol, including investigations into influencing factors related to the attack. So some of it is like a fact-finding mission, who was involved, when were they involved, was it a conspiracy? The investigatory committees cannot bring criminal charges and they can't make legislation. So that's one of the reasons why they're small committees. They're doing the investigation and they will publish a report that has all of their findings. The report then goes to Congress who can review it and decide if there needs to be policy changes or if they can also send it to the Justice Department to decide if there needs to be prosecutions or indictments of any of the actors. Okay, thank you. That's super interesting. And I do want to talk about the actual day of January 6, 2021, but can we talk quickly about who's on the committee and how you got to be on the committee? Like, yes. are they are they other people who work in this space already? N not necessarily. So I actually have a lot of background on this and it is political. So <laughs> caveat on that, getting to this committee point was difficult. So initially, back in May, the House Homeland Security Committee, which is bipartisan, created legislation to make a committee basically to investigate January 6th. And it was modeled after the commission that investigated the September 11th attacks. So it was intended to be bipartisan. The committee that created it was bipartisan. It had um, Republicans and Democrats on it. And it was a deal struck between them to basically write these procedures to say how many Republicans and Democrats would be on it, to set out their purposes, all of that. So all of that was bipartisan. The original committee was supposed to include five Republicans and five Democrats. There would be a Democrat chair and a Republican vice chair. And the Democrat chair and the vice chair together would have the power to approve subpoenas and issue the final report. The subpoena aspect is actually really important because issuing a subpoena means that you can require someone to come before the committee to present evidence. And if they don't do it, they're in contempt of court and could go to jail. So like, that's a really big power that the committee has to do this investigation. So that bill was passed in the House, 252 to 175. So there were 35 Republicans in support of that. So lots of bipartisan support, actually. Unfortunately, the same day, and this is my unfortunately, McConnell came out against the bill and said that he didn't agree with it in that it was basically he was going to support it not being passed in the Senate. And it's a bill that needed to be passed in both houses in order to create the committee. So in May, the bill did die in the Senate. It was later in May. Um, the vote was 54 to 35. There were six Republican senators who joined Democrats in the bill. I have the names of them if anyone's interested. 
So this legislation failed. So instead of being able to create this bipartisan committee, the House on its own created an investigatory committee that is not as big. It doesn't have, I don't think it has as much power, but honestly, I'm not totally sure. And it's not as bipartisan because of this. And so that committee now has six Democrats and their chair is a Democrat and two Republicans. And the Republicans who were invited are Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Both Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger voted for impeachment of Donald Trump, just for reference. I think that is actually an important fact. Um, And this was kind of interesting. Initially, they were going to have six Democrats, including the chair and five Republicans. But the people that McCarthy, who is the minority leader, wanted to nominate the five people included three people who had voted against certification and two that the committee anticipated they were actually going to potentially need to speak to for evidence reasons. And they didn't think that those two people were gonna be able to be objective on the committee. And so Pelosi rejected two of the nominations from McCarthy, not all five of them, but two of them. And due to that rejection, McCarthy said, no, we're not gonna participate in this committee anymore as Republicans because you rejected two of our nominees. And so then the two Republicans who are now on the committee were invited to be on the committee by Pelosi specifically, and they accepted being on that committee. And for reference, Adam Kinzinger is, has announced that he is not going to seek re-election, that he's going to retire from politics. And so he doesn't actually have another race. And then Liz Cheney, who I think we can talk about more, has been totally ostracized by the Republican Party. That happened before this, though. And is in this very precarious position right now. And so as you can see, the makeup of this committee getting to that point was very political. The current makeup of it is political. There has not been a lot of cooperation since that initial legislation failed between Republicans and Democrats as far as doing this investigation. Yeah, those members that are on the committee are very, you know, they're not Trump's biggest supporters for sure. And so, yeah, there's Republicans on there, but what the issue comes down to, I think, is that January 6th is very much a Trump-led day. And so to have a committee made up of entirely people who are very anti-Trump is maybe not the most fair. Now, that's not to say it can't also do good work and find good things, but it is worth knowing. I'm, I'm not going to like make any moral judgments on that, but it's just it's, it's good to know. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, and I think that's fair to know. And I do also want to know on the flip side, including people potentially who are super, super pro-Trump and wouldn't, you know, potentially hear a word against him could also cause problems. So I think that there are, I think it's fair to say there's problems on both sides. Like this is, (laughs) like I said, researching this, this is the most I have delved into like current politics in a long Mm -hmm. time and had to read so many statements by different Congress people, it's exhausting and I hated it. So, but like this is as nitty gritty, mudslinging political as we've kind of gotten as far as even just reading about it, I think. And it was tired. It was tiring to do. You know, to your point, like I don't think that Kevin McCarthy being like, well, you rejected my people, so we're not going to participate was necessarily the best call either. I think, you know, if you wanted to have somebody who maybe wasn't so partisan, right? If you had, if you nominated some people that were potentially going to, vote not to certify the results like maybe you just find like kind of a more neutral republican maybe somebody who's not a pro-trumper and not a liz cheney type but somebody who's like kind of middle of the road you know from a purple state and at least have some you know republican representation there that's not 
that's more neutral. Like, I think that maybe that I, I would have liked to have seen that, but um, I'm not the House Minority Leader, so mm -hmm. I don't have any say. And at least two of his nominees were more like that. One of them was like a freshman uh, representative from Texas, you know, mm. and it, it that made sense to me. I'm like, yeah, let's get a diverse panel of, of people on here. So, sure. yeah. yeah. Why wouldn't Republicans want to be involved in this committee? Why wouldn't what what would what would be the benefit of being like I'm sitting out? I was listening to a lot of Republican, you know, podcasts and things like that at the time. And Republicans saw this as kind of a Democrat McCarthyism kind of thing where we're going to the Democrats are going to use this as a political cudgel now that they control the presidency, they control, you know, the, the legislature. They're going to use this as a tool to go after Republicans. And so rather than have our names be associated with this cause, we're not going to participate because we don't see it as a worthwhile endeavor. We don't see it as something that is, you know, going to, to provide true and honest results. It's going to be more of a witch hunt to go after those that are even tangentially involved or something like that as a political tool rather than like an actual valuable instrument. And I think on a cynical side, I think people are also worried about crossing Trump because he's very influential still. And for the sure. people who have voted, the, the ones who voted for his impeachment and um, the ones who did not vote against the certification, he's really come after them. And it's very, he very much can still sway some of yeah. these elections. People hold what he says in really high esteem. And I mean, McCarthy went to go see Trump a week after January 6th. He went to Mar-a-Lago. And that was something that pe people saw that and they felt like, okay, that's kind of McCarthy coming out that he's still going to be supportive of Trump even after this happened. But Trump this has no political power at all anymore. Right. Right. Exactly. Officially. Yeah. So I do think that that is driving at least what some Republicans, some of how some Republicans are behaving. I'm bummed that the initial commission didn't uh, pass the Senate because that's what I think would have been really great. It was created bipartisanship. It was going to have bipartisanship uh, members. And it's just too bad that, that you know, passed the House with bipartisan support and then failed in the Senate. I mean, I didn't read as much as Aaron, I don't think. And I think Aaron really did the, the deep dive on this one. But um, just as a devil's advocate for for the position that I laid out earlier, you did have people on CNN and kind of the, the mainstream news outlets saying, if you voted for Trump, you're with the Klan and the Capitol Hill rioters. So I think that there was a sense of, if you were at all Republican, you're with those people. And so I think that Republican leadership, you know, how just messy and mudslinging that time was, like Aaron said, like there's a lot of statements that everybody's making because it really came down to, are you or are you not for Trump? in this, uh, in this, how, when all this shakes out that I think people recognized and, you know, probably I think agree cynically. So if we were to cross Trump and, you know, be voluntarily, you know, sit on this committee, that's the end of our political career. Sucks. Should we talk about the day? By the way, it was my birthday. Anyone listening? <laughs> my flipping birthday. Yeah. <laughs> it's now the worst day ever in our recent democracy. It was also deep COVID, like during the really yeah. bad surge last year. Yeah. Like it was just truly bleak. 
it was the day after my birthday. So yeah, it was not, it was a really, yeah. it was a rough day. <laughs> and, and when we say that we talked about this before, I think it was January 11th. It was like a two and a half hour, three hour discussion on this. And it was really like, like it was, it was deep. Like I needed a nap afterwards. It was, it was, it was pretty intense. So um, this is already, I feel like more valuable to me discussing it a year later than not more valuable. I don't want to make it sound like it wasn't useful at the time, but I feel like it's just more clear now than it was. Well, we were just so racked with emotion and devastation a yeah, year ago and sure. having some distance from it. I mean, it's not better, but it's a little more clear. Like you have more formed thoughts, but that was crazy. I mean, let's put ourselves a year, you know, let's put ourselves a year back in time, the peaceful transfer of power and whether or not that was actually occurring, whether or not the president of the United States was inciting an insurrection. So I think we have to start kind of like Zach said a few months before January 6th, because January 6th didn't happen in a vacuum. And it was right. very much the culmination of a lot of things. That's so right. we kind of talked about this in our tech censorship episode, but Trump started talking about election fraud in like August, basically laying the groundwork, the August of um, what was that? I think he was talking about it during the campaign leading up to the 2020 election. So probably throughout the year in 2020 right. before November. So November was the election. I think all throughout that year on the campaign trail, he was, you know, saying, hey, you never know. It's, you know, the big media and big tech and blah, blah, blah. And there was all, remember all the stuff with the ballots, right? Everybody was the mail home ballots and the drop boxes. And the postmaster general was like getting under attack because he was, you know, accused of removing mailboxes and stuff. So like it was wild for months. Lest anyone forget 2020 is the year of COVID. It was mm -hmm. born that year. And so just because we're used to it now, like it was an election year and we were like not able to go to polls in the same way. Like this was not a normal year for voting. Yeah. And it was always yes. going to be contentious when it was Donald Trump versus anyone. Yes. That is like super good context to remember. Yeah. And it was also one of the reasons why there was so much mail-in voting, why right. it became such an issue is because people chose to do that instead of going to a poll and there were fewer polling places because of COVID. There's all, all sorts of factors involved here. And I also think, and this is sort of a separate point, but we didn't really get to see each other. We didn't get to talk about this. Like we also, there were the mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter protests over that same summer. There were a lot of really big contentious political things happening without us being able to interact face-to-face -face in a way we may have been able to do before. And I definitely think that that added to the pressure and to the just rise in, um, it's, I want to say partisanship, but it's not exactly that, but just these. Uh, Evening the divide, like there was a, yes. there was a very clear divide of you, you know, people are, you know, for Black Lives Matter and, or you're not like there was, there was not really any middle ground of like, well, I don't know, we'll see. Like it was, everything was you had to pick a side. Like there was not a, a middle area to stand on every and That very issue. much was part of the election too. Yeah. You know, 100% Trump, 100% Biden, no yeah. middle ground, which is a little bit more, makes a little bit more sense in an actual election, but it was, there wasn't a lot of nuance. So, and, and we didn't yeah. get to talk to each other about it unless, you know, you were specifically FaceTiming your friends to talk about political issues. Right. I think in a normal election cycle, we're, we're you know, maybe we could have stood um, or managed that kind of dichotomy 
just about the election, but it wasn't that. It was the election and the Black Lives Matter and the oh, mask man. mandates and the vaccine and all of that stuff. So like for you know nine plus months, we were like at each other's throats about all these things. And then the election mm-hmm. that Trump lost. <laughs> okay, yeah. so yes. So there's an election typically in November. We like know that day. We know on November 11th or whatever that day is. We know this is who won. That is not what happened in 2020. It dragged and dragged and dragged. Yeah. So the election day is like the first Tuesday in November. Thank um, you. And so it it it's not a specific date, but it's it's like Thanksgiving. So yes, yeah, so there's the election, and right away there was a bunch of things, at least that I saw from from the Republican, you know, social media side. I, I just think because Trump was hyping it up that there was going to be fraud if I lost, and that was the claim, right? It, it was like, if I won, that's fine. No, it's all good. But if I lost, there was for sure fraud or manipulation or whatever. And so there were things that I think ended up, you know, getting recorded or procedures that happened that people like raised, you know, a big stink about where they said, oh, this was evidence of voting fraud. And what happened was, is that in the results of the election after that, the Trump campaign made a bunch of court cases. Like I think it it totaled out like around a hundred different court cases in six different states, where in total across those states, Biden's total margin of victory was um, like three hundred thousand. And so anyway, the Trump team brought about a hundred different cases to court, saying the Dominion voting software um, was flipping votes to Biden, and there was voting fraud, and there were there were voting errors, and some states didn't allow both parties to like oversee the vote counting and there were duffel bags of votes that just like mysteriously like appeared or whatever. All of those cases were lost. Like Trump did not win any case that he brought in any of those states, including the Supreme Court. Like some of them ended up in the Supreme Court and he won none of them. Yeah, so, there were three different Supreme Court cases. The, yeah. in, by February, there were 40 cases. There's been even more since then. The number I keep seeing is 62 lawsuits challenging the presidential election. I, it could be a hundred, you know, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I, I saw a finish at more than 95. Definitively. Like right. there, there weren't, they, they didn't find fraud through the courts at least. Right. Um, and one of the things I wanted to mention about the court cases is that many of the cases in those initial months, right after the election. So like November and December, they couldn't even really bring fraud claims because they didn't have evidence of fraud. And so they were bringing claims saying, okay, well, the, the process wasn't followed specifically and they didn't do this exactly right. But they couldn't actually allege fraud. There is a, a few of them, a few of the really high profile ones were the ones that Rudy Giuliani led. It was just kind of crazy from a legal perspective, I guess, watching it as a lawyer, someone trying to answer a judge, like, well, what evidence did you bring? How are you going to fulfill the elements of this crime? And they're like, oh, well, we're not going to do that. And we're just going to talk about this other thing. And it was really, uh, it was kind of wild to watch happen. So it totally, yeah. I mean, and it's funny because this is one of the areas where I feel like I I was um, researching this year changed on because previously, you know, I feel like, and I still feel like that if you're, you know, running a presidential election and you feel like there has been, you know, some you know, gray zone or something like that, or it's like, no, I think I won this state or something. I feel like you should have the right to challenge that. I feel like that's something that we should allow for our democratic process because, you know, mistakes do happen. And I think that that's a good thing. We should have 
avenues for that. So like, I'm, I'm grateful that there are ways that we can present challenges to say, okay, in this state, you know, because of X, Y, and Z factors, uh, I think I, I actually won that state. Having seen the exhaustive list, there's a, a great one at Business Insider um, that I, I'll link to that has like the whole list of things of, okay, Trump claimed this. And then it says, here's what, you know, either happened that proves it false or didn't happen that proves it false. Um, and so I already said a couple of them, but basically the fact that none of the cases like had evidence or um, in fact, exculpatory evidence, you know, evidence pointing the opposite um, just is like kind of baffling. And the fact that Trump was so vocal and so like, he, he was just so convinced the fact that he won when, when all of his cases had no evidence pointing to the fact that he won. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, I'm for the challenge, but I'm like, dude, you were like off your nut. Like you were totally off base and just were lying for months. Right. One of the things I want to mention on just like the ability to bring the lawsuits. Yeah. You can bring lawsuits. That's true, but you're actually not allowed to bring frivolous lawsuits that have no basis. In fact, you, you can imagine a scenario where people are just bringing super frivolous lawsuits that have no evidence all the time and how that would bog up the legal process. So you're actually not allowed to do that. And if you do that as an attorney, because you have ethics obligations, you can actually face consequences up to disbarment. And the um, at least in one of the cases that was brought in Michigan, uh, lawyers for Trump, Sidney Powell was one of them, and a few other lawyers were sanctioned by a judge, um, one of the district judges, for bringing frivolous lawsuits. So yeah, you can bring them, I guess, if you want to as an attorney, but you also have to like stake your integrity on these cases if you're going to bring them. Um, And some of these, these lawyers were called out for that. So January 20th, 2021, inauguration. We know what happens on inauguration day. What was supposed to happen on January 6th? Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong in this, but basically what, what's supposed to happen is that because as we talked about in our electoral college episode, when you vote, you actually vote for your electors for your state to go and, and vote on who's going to be president. So some states are winner take all, some states are proportional. But basically what happens is you submit those votes to your state legislatures and then your state legislatures certify, here's what the electoral body for our state said. So for example, Arizona was one that was like really contested. So Arizona, the people vote. Here's what the electors say. The electors get together. I think the electors are supposed to get together like December 15th. I think that's like the national day. Um, that's like in the constitution that after the election, by December 15th, all the state electors have to have their um, votes submitted. Get together. They submit their votes to the state legislature. So to Arizona state legislature. And then from there, they go through and they certify to say, okay, yes, we've, you know, we received all the, the votes from the electors. Uh, it, they're legitimate. It matches. And so we're going to then submit that to the, the national legislature. And then they go through and they say, okay, we've received the vote, you know, Arizona, you know, reps get up there and say, we've received our, you know, delegates uh, votes. Uh, and then they go ask and certify, yes, these votes are legitimate. And then once all um, the 270 electoral votes are passed and counted from all the, the states, then Yes, we certified the election was authentic and legitimate. And now, you know, candidate A, candidate B is the president. So that was what was supposed to happen. It's, you know, I, I think has been usually pretty smooth. And what ended up happening was that 
there was this notion that if we go in and we actually stop the federal legislature from going through that process and certifying to say that Arizona's and Michigan's and Georgia and blah, 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 if we stop that process from happening, then somehow Trump will still be president. Like there was, there's, I feel like <laughs> step one, uh, step two, question mark, step three, profit. Like there was no step two, like just stop the thing. And then Trump still is in office. Like, of course not, but that's what ended up happening. And there was also an idea, and I think Trump initially said it, that Mike Pence, who was vice president, was going to be able to stop the certification as well, because it was in his power as vice president to not certify the election results. Mm -hmm. Um, Mike Pence is there as vice president to preside over the certification, which is one of his jobs. He absolutely did not have the power to not certify election results. That's not a power of the vice president, didn't matter who it was. Um, and that was very confusing, but that was definitely something that, you know, if you read Trump's speech that day or other things he said, very much he at least thought that Mike yeah. Pence had the power to do that and then was had this really crazy pressure on Mike Pence to somehow stop the certification, which he didn't actually have the power to do. Here's here's my question. When we think of like a riot, we think of a bunch of people who are in a place and you all just sort of get whipped up into a frenzy and then Somebody says, do this, and y'all rah, and go that way. People took flights to be here. Like, there were people from out of town. Like, walk me through that process of who could have organized this, and is Donald Trump responsible? Who's responsible? That is one of the big questions yeah. that the, yeah. the January 6th committee is looking into. I don't know what they've found so far on that. There are some statements from Mark Meadows, who was Trump's chief of staff at the time, that are helpful for understanding what happened that day, at least as far as who was talking to Trump to try and get him to come out and say, like condemn the rioting. But I don't actually know how deep they've been able to get into what happened beforehand. The rally itself was planned though. It was called the Stop the Steal rally. And the Stop the Steal was something that um, I, Trump didn't originate. That came from like, citizens i'm not sure from his exactly base where. like his from base his came base, up with this yeah yeah mm -hmm. and so they had organized this rally basically in support of trump but from my understanding the at least outward non-underground uh advertising of the rally was not you know we're gonna go storm the capitol it was no we're gonna come here and protest in our numbers and exercise our voices as citizens to be able to say that we don't agree with this which they are allowed to do, right? What you're not allowed to do, obviously, is to break into the Capitol and assault Capitol police officers and all of that. And so I think the initial rally was not intended to be violent, although some people will probably argue with that characterization. I think some people think that there were people who came there with the intent to be violent. I mean, there are people who brought weapons. Um, so it's it's kind of hard to say any of that definitively. If you are interested in this question of who these people were and why they were there, the New York Times did the, at, of the Daily did a really good three part series on January sixth. The first part of the series is most of the the episode is just an interview that the FBI had with one of the rioters who has since been indicted um, and, and now actually sentenced to six months in prison. Um, and it's just a conversation that the FBI had with this person and they're asking the question, 
of who are these people and why were they there and how did this spiral into a riot when it was a protest initially? So I don't know, you know, exactly if you can say like how that happened, but I think the frenzied nature of everything leading up to that moment of how many people were in the crowd of the statements that Trump made at the time of the statements that Giuliani made at the time of marching to the Capitol, which is something that Trump said of fighting like hell, of, you know, stopping the steal, like that's really what whipped people up into this sort of riot mentality. And then there were thousands of people there and it became, it basically did become a riot. It spun out of control. Yeah. I mean, so there was that comment. We, I think I said it earlier, we fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And it's, you know, under this banner of stop the steal rally, um, after months of, you know, claiming that the election was stolen, like it, it, it does lend itself to a certain point of view that you're encouraging people to stop, you know, as, as he was saying, the steal of the election. Um, now, again, to play devil's advocate, which at this point, you know, I'll, I'll say straight out, I think that at this point, what troubled me more about all of this is Trump more so than uh, Trump and, and his effect that he's had on the body politic more so than the rioters that were there that day. Because my take is, is I don't, I don't think Trump necessarily was trying to get people to go and storm the Capitol building, but I do think he was being lying and being malicious and whipping people up to get them to the point where they could do something like this. Um, because he, you know, his, in, like I said, devil's advocate. Um, I know that everybody here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peaceably and patriotically make your voices heard. That's what kind of his defense team has pointed to, to say, no, this was not, you know, he, he had no part in this. He was not intending this to be, you know, violent. Um, but I still think that all of his statements that led up to it, and I read his speech too. I, I didn't read all of it because God, he is awful to read. He's just like, I didn't read all of it either. It was also so long. It was, it was <laughs> so long. So hard yeah. to read. The oh my gosh. not full sentences there no. or they're run on forever. It's really difficult. It's really hard. But but yeah, so I think that's that's what happened. So you ended up with a, a certain group of people that probably thought, hey, this will be fun. We'll, you know, we're, and these people, I don't know, they, you know, there have been arrests. There have been people that have been arrested and identified from this because obviously there's tons of footage of them. But they probably thought, you know, we're we're going to be, um, I don't know, I get like Death Eater kind of vibes of like, oh, like he will praise me as no as no Death Eater has been praised before. Like if I if we go ahead and do this, like we're going to be, you know, held up as, you know, MAGA number one or something like it's it's just kind of wild. So th there's a huge group of people that were responsible. Obviously, you know, we all seen the pictures, but and, and then I feel like, too, he did he did make a secondary statement, which I think Aaron made an allusion to that. Um, he, he tweeted out like a one minute video and the video, the, his statement from that said, I know how you feel, but go home and go home in peace. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. Um, but then he also says like literally a second later, we had an election stolen from us. It was a landslide election and everybody knows it, especially the other side, but you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. Um, so it's like, even in his thing of like, go home, which he, he says, go home, but he also says, but it was super duper stolen. Don't forget. So. He said, we love you to them as they were. Was that, was that on this one too? I forget. Cause he just says so much stupid stuff. Yeah. I think um, it was. Yeah. Well, and I just want to, 
on the protester level, I think it's easy with big crowds of people, you know, and say whipping up into a frenzy to disclaim a little personal responsibility. And I think there's probably people who have participated who are trying to disclaim some responsibility and just say, oh, we just, I didn't really know what was going on. I was just kind of wrapped up in it, you know, but over 700 people have been indicted by federal prosecutors. It's not like it was just like one or two people doing something wrong. Yeah. Hundreds of people storming the Capitol, breaking down fences, assaulting police officers. Like, this is not a just Trump, you know, doing this. I think that Trump is the instigator for all of this, but like, this is a personal responsibility issue. And this is one of the reasons why I think that it's just such a big deal for not just Trump to be taking responsibility and speaking out against it. And I just, I'm not trying to get like too inflammatory, but I actually think it's really important to understand what the police officers were going through at that time. And so I have a couple quotes from them of just from the actual congressional investigation. Um, One is a Capitol police officer who was interviewed um, during the investigation. And he said, The physical violence we experienced was horrific and devastating. My fellow officers and I were punched, kicked, shoved, sprayed with chemical irritants, and even blinded with eye-damaging lasers by a violent mob. And then here is a quote from a DC Metro police officer. He said he was grabbed, beaten, tased, all while being called a traitor to his country. He said that he was at risk of being stripped of and killed by my own firearm as I heard chants of kill him with his own gun. I can still hear those words in my head today. And I just like don't want to understate the seriousness of what this was. This is the worst attack on our capital since 1812. And this is one of the reasons why when I think about January 6th, when I was looking into it, when I was trying to really understand and and be nuanced and be objective and all the things that we could talk about, like I don't know if there's a way to be objective about something like that. I mean, it was just, it was, it was wrong and it was terrible. And it's, I think that is objective. Um, and it's not something that we can be okay with as a country. And so some of the statements that people, pundits, also representatives have made after the fact about it not being as bad as it was, I think that's just a huge issue and also completely false. It was as bad as it was. I have similar feelings. I think that you have a certain responsibility for your words and Donald Trump believes that he is outside of that, that it does not apply to him. Um, Some numbers, 2000 to 2,500 people stormed the Capitol. That's not like a handful of people. That's a huge amount of people. Uh, 138 Capitol police officers were injured. Four police officers in the seven months following the attack, committed suicide. Um, Trump did not send the National Guard. And then also noteworthy, as of January 2022, which is now, uh, 57 people who were involved in some way, shape, or form with this uh, attack are running for public office. Yeah, that was one of the things that I looked up that I wanted to talk about as far as like the aftermath and the effects. I think there's lots of effects of this. But Um, One of the statistics I saw was that a third of the Republicans running for office in 2022 are running on the election lie platform that the election of 2020 was stolen and that there are election problems. Um, 
I think that's a huge issue. But if you want a Trump endorsement, which many of these people do because it's effective with voters, that's one of the things that these people are saying to get that endorsement. Trump's not giving it to people who are saying that he didn't win the election. That sucks. I do want to say that Capitol Police did request National Guard help, um, but it was denied um, by Speaker Pelosi before. So Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House is in charge of like all the functionings of the Capitol building, not just like that's among her duties. Um, and so she she denied that request. And then they made the request again during the attack and it took over an hour for approval. Um, so that's, I, I don't know that that one's specifically, you know, on on Republicans on this one, but um, like it clearly would have been better if the National Guard was there um, for that. But I tying into the whole thing that I didn't even know about all these people running for office are running on the, it was a fraudulent election thing. I, I, I read this article from Jonah Goldberg, who wrote for Barry Weiss's Substack, which is Substack is kind of like a blog, I guess, of some sort. Um, and I actually talked about Barry Weiss when we did our journalism episode. She was the um, reporter who worked for like the Washington Post and New York Times, and she's left. But this article, I think, was really good. Um, and it's called the January 6th Republicans. And um, Jonah goes through and, and he talks about some of his like kind of ideological, um, you know, people and how they made, you know, arguments. Conservatism was always about the facts and the arguments and how you would um, string together the facts to, you know, put forth a compelling case for why you believe what you believe. And I feel like I resonate to that because that's what I try to do, you know, in, in my life is I, I try to look at the facts of things. But he writes this, trying to find consistency in Trump's statements and actions was like trying to find a predictable pattern in a runaway fire hose. This proved a grave problem for Trump's defenders who were desperate to find a coherent ideological framework called Trumpism. But Trumpism isn't a worldview as much as a chaos dominated mode of action. Over time, pundits and politicians, as well as a new generation of very ambitious, very online young activists realized that only rhetorical harbor was to put your faith in the man. Whatever Trump did or said, you'd never get in trouble if you just said, well, I trust his instincts or Donald Trump was elected to be a disruptor. This cult of personality dynamic hastened the elevation of narrative over ideology. There were other factors at play. Social media is designed to arouse passion in pursuit of monetizing dopamine hits, gatekeeping institutions that once imposed standards by filtering out dem demagoguery and bad faith lost their power and influence. Previous Republican presidents were judged on the right by how well they conformed to a noble, recognizable thing called conservatism. Obviously, the meaning of conservatism is always contested, but it was contested within a fairly broad and deep consensus about its basic contours, not Donald Trump. I just feel like that, like this article is really great. And I feel like it just does such a great job of not explaining away, but explaining how we got 700 or 2000 people who felt like they were empowered to storm the Capitol building because it was four years of this man being president. It felt like we were on the right having to constantly like gaslight ourselves almost into defending why whatever action was happening was maybe good. And like, it, it does something to your psyche, I think to do that. And, you know, I didn't always agree with Trump and I, um, wish we had somebody else, but I think that some things I agreed with and some things I didn't. And this was one that, 
you know, looking back on, I'm like, how, how did, how did this happen? <laughs> it's wild. I think that that's one of the most frustrating things for me is why there were not more Republicans who were just against this, just saw this happen. And maybe it took that to get to that point, say to get to January 6th. There were, there was an impeachment after this. So I do want to talk about that. Um, Impeachment articles were brought against Trump for incitement of insurrection. And even if you didn't vote for the impeachment, which I think that, I mean, there were 10 Republicans who did. And I really, really respect that vote from those Republicans. Um, Even if you weren't going to go that far, like call it out consistently as something that is not okay, not just the day of. And I have not seen that consistency. And I think it's because people don't want to cross Trump. And that's just so disappointing. The rhetoric of, say, uh, McConnell day of versus today, it's, it's just different. And McConnell is silent about this now. McCarthy is full on back with Trump when the day of he was saying this is, you know, Trump's fault and we can't be okay with this. And I don't know, I don't like to just like, cherry pick and point at, at actors, but I think that people listen to these representatives, obviously. And that is just really hard to see because it just feels like something that should be like a right or wrong. And it feels like it's not. Yeah, no, I, 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 I wholeheartedly agree with that. I, I really do. Um, I, I have issues that are tangential to the January 6th thing. And I wish that like I have wishes that the left was more consistent in in them calling out political violence or not encouraging political violence, but I I wholeheartedly agree that there's there's no room for this. I wish Republicans would publicly get over this and get over Trump and like we we need somebody who's more noble. Um, we need somebody who's more honest and I don't know noble. I feel like is just enough. To, to be the leader of the party, because I don't feel like it should be Donald Trump. And I get why people supported him, because like I said, I, I supported some of the things that he did, because it was satisfying for him to, you know, punch mainstream media. And it was satisfying to him for him to punch big tech and made us feel good, us being people on the right. So to a certain extent, I get why he was supported, because, you know, coming out of eight years of Obama and I don't know, I kind of point toward to Don Lemon and thing where he said, if you vote for Trump, then you're with the, the Klan and the Capitol Hill riders. Like, I feel like if you say that you're for, you know, strong borders or something like that, that you're racist. Like, I feel like there's that tendency there. And so for, for Republicanism, the shield of Donald Trump to stand behind felt good. It made, I think it made people feel safe. Um, but I think that it was a little bit of a deal with the devil um, in some respects where great, we felt good, but um, and, and there were some things that maybe I think were positives, but in the end of the day, like what, what happened to the body politic? I don't, looking back on it just a year later, I don't know that it was worth it. I, I don't think it was. Um, That's really interesting. And I, um, I really appreciate hearing that perspective. The um, second part of that New York Times podcast that I was talking about was an interview with Liz Cheney. And one of the things that she said in this interview, and for anyone who doesn't know, Liz Cheney used to be a really big deal in the Republican Party, very much someone who 
was well-respected. She had committee appointments. She had leadership positions. When she came out against Donald Trump, she's basically been like thrown out of the party and she's kind of off on her own right now. Um, one of the reasons that she's on this, this uh, committee to investigate is because she's not really supported by the Republican Party right now. And she's also currently a favorite punching bag of Donald Trump, who likes to talk about how much he hates her right now and how people should you know, not vote for her. But she had a quote in this um, interview that I thought was just so powerful. And it was kind of, it proceeded by her saying, you know, I agreed with Donald Trump on a lot of things. I voted with his policies like 90% of the time. But this is the quote. There's no moment at which I think that you can with good faith say, Yes, he's dangerous to this country, but I'm more worried about my political future. So I'm just going to keep my head down. I don't know that the Republic, frankly, can long endure if that is the position elected officials take. And I just think that encapsulates, you know, where we're at right now with um, some of the officials and then especially some of the people who are currently running, who are running based on this voter fraud lie. And that is concerning to me. So I, I don't know if now would be a good time to talk about sort of where we're at right now, that this aftermath, this state of kind of where our democracy is. I think that works for me because this is all very depressing. And the question that runs through my head when we talk about this, because it's fine if it's fine. You guys have heard me say this time and again, as long as we have an idealistic version of our life and society ahead of us. And you just think we should do it this way to get there. And I just think we should do it that way to get there. It's fine. I'm fine to disagree with people, but this feels bigger than that. This feels worse than that. I'll speak for myself, knowing that there are others who feel like me, not everyone. It is hard to tolerate people who tolerate Trump because we know that you're willing to let things slide that we would never let slide. And so that feels really, really big. It feels hard to have friends and family that tolerate things that you find intolerable. Always my goal is to be as honest as possible about how hard these things can be because the question in my head is what do we do now? Because yes, I can have elected officials that I don't want to vote for and I don't want other people to vote for, but I have literal people in my life that believe these things. You have this like strong feeling of like, I have to have a very surface level relationship with this person because I know that they're like, They've got this whole other like dark side of things that they're willing to tolerate and that they think are is okay. It, it stresses me out. Like I'm very stressed thinking about the things that I have to ignore. And like, again, it doesn't, it's not just elected officials. Like going back to 2016, like Donald Trump did not exist in a vacuum. Like it, there were so many people on that stage that were Republican. There were so many other choices and overwhelmingly like, Every time we narrowed it down, it was Trump all the way until election day. And he didn't elect himself. Like we have to get along, all of us. And I don't know how we do that when a part of me feels like, are my neighbors like secretly evil? Like uh, in what we believe, like it just, it feels like I have to really walk myself back from the ledge to be able to be okay with this, to be okay with knowing that other people are okay with things that I don't think are okay. Some of the things that I want to talk about are not going to like make us feel better, I think. But they're also, I think they're really important to talk about. Um, so I just want to preface that. But I resonate with what you're saying, Cassie. I was actually talking to my sister 
this week when I, I hadn't even started researching yet, but I knew I was going to, and I knew it was going to be hard. And I was just like, in some ways, my life would be so much easier if I didn't care about politics. If I just like, didn't care about any of this and didn't have to like research it or talk about it, or I could just like put myself in a bubble and talk to people I agree with and not have to face these things. But like, that doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help me. I know that, but I had that feeling of like, I wish I could just not care about this because it would be easier. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree. You know, it's like, I really welcomed the break that we had during the holidays because it was like, just it you know, not that we were doing anything so daily and for us to jump into like literally this event, which is so catalyzing for how we view politics now was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is what that level of stress feels like again. It, it would be much easier, right? I mean, this is a lot to deal with. And the funny thing is, is like on a day-to-day level, it affects our lives like hardly at all. But the outcome of like how we treat this and how we move forward is like a body politic will affect our lives unequivocally. Yeah, it absolutely will, which is one of the reasons I want to talk about kind of where we're at right now and what I think we need to be thinking about for the future, um, especially as far as elections go. For one, I saw several studies and I, they, they all have slightly different percentages, but very close of the number of Republicans who believe right now that Biden's 2020 election win was solely because of voter fraud, basically that it was illegitimate. The numbers I saw ranged from 65% to 75% of current Republicans believing that basically the election was illegitimate. That's a huge issue. And we can't have that many people who think that our elections are not legitimate. I mean, that's a, that's a fundamental like basis of our democracy is free and fair elections and people believing in free and fair elections. Because of this, That's where a lot of those voter laws are coming from over many states have passed voter laws in the last year. Um, The number I saw, this is from the States United Democracy Center, is that Republicans have introduced at least 216 bills in 41 states, specifically to give legislatures more power over election officials. Now, this is a specific kind of voting law change. And what it's doing is basically taking the power to certify and make decisions based on elections away from kind of more nonpartisan bodies or people like secretaries of state and move them into more political bodies like state legislatures. Currently, these state legislatures um, where these laws are being introduced are Republican held but they could be Democrat held, you know, this isn't like they're, they're being currently pursued by like Republican policies, but this is an issue that is going to transcend political parties at some point, you know, depending on who's controlling the legislature. And um, some of these laws to me, they're pretty concerning. For instance, in Georgia, one of the election laws on its face, it seems pretty neutral it changes how election board members are selected. So previously they were, and election board members are people who oversee the elections. Previously they were selected by both political parties. Now the GOP controlled county commission has a sole authority to restructure these boards and to appoint new members. But if you just look at the law, all it says is, you know, we're moving who can do this to the county commission as opposed to these local boards. And so I think that there are things like this that are kind of sneaking past people unless you're taking a closer look 
to figure out like, well, what's the effect of these laws? And in Georgia, at least, um, across Georgia, members of at least 10 county election boards have been removed or had their position eliminated. Um, and at least five of them are people of color. Most of them are Democrats, though there are some Republicans, and they will most likely be replaced by all Republicans. And one of the big issues with these laws, I think, is not just that they're like happening right now. It's that if we have an election in 2024 that is really, really close and contested, it sets up the situation where Democrats could be totally not uh, believing election results because of these changes in the law and thinking that there are political part or partisan actors behaving badly in how they're running elections. At, at this point, there is only one party who is making these election fraud claims, but we could have these claims in the future on both sides. Like this is an attack on our a political voting system. And it's a problem for Democrats and for Republicans. And so, you know, when I'm thinking about not having more voter laws, it's not necessarily these ID laws that everyone sees on the news all the time that are pretty easy to be like, well, why can't you just show an ID? It's this restructuring of election boards in various states. And that's undermining the political process. And so I think we need to be really aware that this is happening. And if we're able to in those states or just wherever we are to try and do whatever we can to make sure that this doesn't happen and that the elections are in the hands of nonpartisan or at least bipartisan commissions. Yeah, I think bipartisanship is the way to go, right? Like I, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts talking about like psychology and how, um, like the left and the right need each other. And um, it's Jordan Peterson's podcast and he's, you know, clinical psychologist and has some things breaking down that people on the left and the right tend to have certain like personality traits that are indicative of their leaning left or leaning right. And that typically, again, this is not like a rule or anything, but typically as, as, a, as a group, liberals tend to be more creative um, and more open and conservatives tend to have more like respect for institutions, but are also more um, like, like process oriented or something along those lines. And that as a way of, you know, us existing together in the world, we need each other. Um, because, you know, and, and he gives some examples that, for example, like typically liberal types are the ones that will, you know, found a business like they, cause they have a thousand ideas and maybe some of them are really bad, but then there's like, you know, the Facebooks in there and the, um, you know, the MySpaces and the whatevers, right. And those are great ideas. And then, you know, eventually over time, the conservative types are the ones that kind of run it because the creative people are off creating more great new stuff. Um, typically liberals are looking at hierarchies, which I think is very common now and, and looking at hierarchies and finding ways to include more people to bring them up the hierarchy and criticizing hierarchies for their flaws and saying that the, no, your hierarchy is becoming, um, you know, corrupted by power only rather than, you know, competence or something like that. And, um, and that that's a good thing because we need to be looking at our you know institutions and making sure that they're keeping up with society as it evolves and but it has to be a, a push and pull of both and so i think that that's applicable for elections too right i i i worry that if our faith in our elections is completely diminished to the point where nobody believes it where you have 10 percent of the you know and then and then what's problemsome there is that it's the it's the uneducated 10 percent. it's the uneducated minority that believe the election actually happened because they're the ones that aren't paying attention to the news 
and they're not seeing their leaders claiming fraud and the other side's leaders claiming it was real. Like it's, it's the most ignorant among us then that would believe the elections. And that's not, that's not a good thing. So I, I agree. I don't know about all the, the laws and stuff that are going on, but um, I think that the more bipartisanship we can in this realm specifically, and I think it's time for us to move past Trump. I mean, specifically speaking to Republicans, like I think we can, we can take lessons from him. Like, okay, like let's, let's look at this beyond just like a, a Pollyannish kind of way to say, oh, just get past Trump. Like, let's look at what he did and say, okay, what were things that we liked about him? Okay. He, you know, spoke truth to the mainstream media. Okay, fine. Like let's, let's incorporate some of that into our, our strategy going forward. And, um, you know, if you, if you liked his taxation thing, like let's take his stance on taxation and, and do that or whatever it is, like, let's take the lessons learned from him and leave the baggage and leave him behind and move on to Rand Paul 2024. Give me somebody who's a lot oh, better. Boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot better. <laughs> okay, Zach, I'm just teasing. Oh, come I'm on. just teasing. Come on. <laughs> No, I think that that's a really good point. It is an election year. It's uh, what do we call it? A special? Is it what are midterms. they? Midterms. midterms. Thank you. It's an election year for midterms. This is going to be a big deal in a lot of ways. I think for me, you've really got my my brain ruminating on the idea that if we don't believe in our elections, like that's not America. Like that's a really that's a really 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 big deal that we can trust that we have fair and just elections where everybody can be involved. Like, I mean, just look at the news of other countries. It's horrible. Things getting overthrown. There are two leaders. They both swear that they're in chart. Like horrible things are happening. So it is critical that we protect our democracy in that way. And I think I'd like to chat with you guys about that more as we go through this year, um, kind of about what we can do and how we can all, not just the three of us, but how we can all be involved in creating a space where we feel confident in the elections that we're voting in. If there are any things we can be doing to donate or write letters or whatever it may be to get the word out that like it needs to happen fairly. I also had a question for Zach, but you answered it a little bit. I just was going to kind of throw it out there. How do you navigate being a conservative and also sort of attempting this to put this distance between you and Donald Trump and like, would you have, I, I just asked because you've done it for years as best you can. And would you have any even recommendations? Um, thanks. I think that's a really good question. And I've, I've tried, I've been trying to think more. I don't think that it's something that we do very often. I feel like we process a lot. I don't know that we actually think. And so um, in pre preparation for one of the episodes that we're going to be doing on this show, which is going to be like, what is your philosophy on like your worldview? I've been trying to think about some of those things. And, you know, for me, I feel like it's trying to look at things in a way that is not impartial because I don't think I can truly be impartial. Right? I mean, you, you can't really set all your biases aside, but try to look at things in line with my, my worldview and the things that I value. And I think it's, it's a matter of how, how do I be a conservative while also putting distance between Donald Trump? I think it's consistency. I think that's how you do it. I think you have to be consistent in if you say that you're for a thing when somebody does it, you know, when your guy does it, that same behavior you would have, you should ask yourself, how would you feel if that same behavior was done by somebody on the other side? And so a lot of that is I, I've condemned a lot of the behavior, I feel like, 
of, of Donald Trump and tried to say, well, but I agree with the policy because of X, Y, and Z reasons. I don't want to just say I like it because he did it, but I like it because I agree that an economy and the people thrive more when they can keep more of their money. Um, or, um, yeah, I don't know. I can't think of anything else right now. My no, but that's, not a, really that's there, a good but, example. Yeah. You know, I think that that's, that's the thing is not just supporting somebody because, you know, going back to kind of Jonah Goldberg's article of because he is my guy, right? But looking at it and applying that standard to the other side of if this was something that my opponent said or in a manner that my opponent behaved in, how would I feel about that? I don't know. I, on Off the cuff, I think that's that's probably how I've done it. It's condemning when appropriate, supporting when they do something right. And, you know, hopefully that's something that most people do, but I don't think maybe as many considering that 70 up to 75% of Republicans think the election was stolen, but that's what I try to do. And I try to read every day. Those are my two things. I don't know. It's, it's a tough position to be in because that's the person that was president, you know, (laughs) at the time. So it's, yeah, I, I get it. I do think there's, I think you can be a Republican and not embrace Trump and that we're at, as you know, we're at a place like, especially now he's not the president anymore, like break from Trump. You know, there are so many other things that the Republican party can be doing and Trump still wields an enormous amount of power. And I think it's up to all of us to kind of stand up and say that what he did and what he stands for is not okay at this point. I think now's the actual best time to do it because it's January of 2022. Like if you're looking at, at a timeline of 2020 and 2024, we are in the middle. This is, this mm-hmm. is as far away as we can get from, from the events of, of January 6th, um, you know, this year, mm-hmm. um, before it starts to become an election season again. So I feel like you, you have to drop it now because this still gives you plenty of time as a Republican to find somebody else who's going to I don't want to say fractured because I don't think the Republican party is fractured right now, but to bring the party together under a new person or a new, you know, Jonas said Trumpism, you know, find a new, because we always find, you know, what's Obama's legacy, what's Bush's legacy. Like we always ask that. So let's find somebody new who's not Trump, who we can build a legacy around that will help us, you know, as a country and as a party, because of course I want my, my team to win, but not at the expense of my nation. And I think that that kind of gets to, you know, the Liz Cheney quote. And and also just, I feel like if you sat down and talked to most Americans and say, okay, all right, great. Let's say you're in favor of all these voting laws that are, that are being passed and that they're hyper-partisan laws and they're restructuring how we do elections in favor of a specific ideology. What happens when that power switches to the other side, right? Go down the, 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 Mm -hmm. The steps, a few, you know, a few steps on the path and see and just paint a hypothetical picture for if this power you're, you know, for on a state level or federal level, giving yourself is suddenly not in your hands anymore. And you're the victim of that power. How would you feel about that? Tell me, would that be a good thing? That's a really, yeah. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? And so that's, I think, some of also the reason why I am conservative, because I'm like, I don't want anybody to have more power. I don't want, I don't want to be subjected to more power from the people that I don't vote for. And I don't want the people that don't vote for my guy to have to subject to any more power from my guy. Like, mm-hmm. so I think just stepping, you know, down the path a little bit farther to paint a picture of let's, let's like 
tone it down a little bit and and just right. mm-hmm. what the country could be like if we were like, you know, as a team instead of competitors. Like we all are neighbors and we're throwing bricks at each other's houses. How is this going to end? Like you're literally tearing down your house to throw your brick at your neighbor's house. You're going to then end up houseless in like eight years. Like what's your problem? Right. And like with the those really big just democratic foundations like our voting system those are the kinds of things that like that really should be nonpartisan and so if you do just take away the inflammatory headline that says you know like republicans are taking away all our voting rights like take that headline away and actually look at what the legislation does and realize like well this could hurt you but also this is just generally like this is bad for like our voting system for our like the integrity of our elections let's just look at that and try and like take a step back from just like the headlines that we're looking at and as like a good news note it, if <laughs> anyone is wondering they have done audits on in states for the elections of 2020 really intense audits that they don't normally do just because of all of these allegations and they found that they have upheld the results in every case. There has not been evidence, even after the fact, even after doing all of these audits of widespread voter fraud. And I think that that should give us some comfort. There's a lot of people who still don't like believe that even with these state audits. For at least a couple of them, I found Arizona and Georgia, they have posted on the Secretary of State website with all of what they did and all their data and everything, which I think is really helpful. Texas has that too. I don't know how convincing that will be to some people who kind of just don't want to hear it, but we do actually have that evidence now. And I think, I hope that that is helpful um, going forward. And if you can say anything about, you know, 2020 and even the years before it, I think that our system did at least show that it is capable at this point of withstanding a huge amount of pressure um, and, and attack, I mean, for the whole legal system to stand up basically and say, no, there isn't evidence of this and we're not going to cave to this. That really does show, you know, the strength of that, at least aspect of our system. Um, and many of the judges, not all of them, many of them were Trump appointees. It wasn't just this like political, um, decision-making this was no, we're going to follow the legal process our representatives came back and voted the night of January 6th, very late at night, back to the Capitol to certify the election. You know, we currently have Biden in office. Like it was a really bad day and we need to take it seriously and we need to consider, you know, what we're doing going forward. But we did test the strength of the way our government is set up. And I think it did withstand that. And now we just need to continue to protect it going forward. Yeah, it's it was tested. It passed it was weakened and so now it's i think our job to rebuild that strength and that and that strength comes with confidence so the more confident we are the more we can trust in the system the stronger the system is and for me being a small government kind of guy like that should be a really strong system 100 percent. well said by both of you you know just in the interest of ending on a more like aaron said good news positive note this is our opportunity we're talking to you specifically Gen Z and millennials, people who are sort of just discovering that this is your, this is your country too. And this is your life too. And I just, I can really see the opportunity ahead of us for us to rise up as a community of young people, of people 
and to just demand more of ourselves and more of others, because it is hard when the person you didn't vote for ends up as the winner of the primaries or the winner of the election. But it starts so much smaller than that. And if we, you know, demand that we ourselves like ask for what is best and stand together and vote for the future that we want to see, like every generation has their chance to shape what they want the world to look like and what they want the United States to look like, what our democracy and our, our footprint's going to look like. And I know that sounds a little bit like I'm running for office and I'm trying to get you to vote for me, but I just really think that if it was all doom and gloom and bleak, and I really truly believed that there was nothing we could do, then we wouldn't be here talking with you. There, sure. There's a lot we can do. And we're going to talk more about that because that's what I'm passionate about. And I want people listening to this feeling like, yes, I can have conversations with myself and educating myself, but I can also do that with my friends and my family members. I could also um, help get new voters to enter the space and be involved in creating and shaping my community. I can help lead change and affect laws and, and do things that are truly good. We, the more of us that are involved and really think about this, and you got to think about this, the president right now is like the oldest sitting president that's ever existed. If Donald Trump wins again, he's the oldest. Like these are people who are, I'm 29. Uh, is Joe Biden 67? Like, no, he's like 78. Yeah. <laughs> okay, folks. <laughs> Seven, eight so minus 29 old. equals. This man is 49 years older than me. 49. The man's been in government his entire life. Like this is his only job. He's it's he's extremely been... significant. It's it's I, I it's worth mentioning that this is who is in charge. I voted for Bernie Sanders, you guys. Also very old. Love the guy, but very old. He's not our people. There are people who are gonna get it, and we can talk to each other about it more, and we can demand that some of us were. Oh, maybe maybe a little scared or a little too fired up. Like we can all just sort of moderate and come up with the best solution together. I just truly believe that that's the only path forward. We cannot continue down this deep V of I go left and you go right. It's just not gonna work. And to quote um, Barack Obama, we are the ones we've been waiting for. You quoted Barack Obama? This is Good why quote. I married you. <laughs> Good quote. He had some zingers for sure. <laughs> Okay, I'll come up with a Rand Paul quote for next week's pod, folks. I owe him one. <laughs> All right, let's see it. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> As always, we're so thankful to everybody for joining us and listening. Aaron and Zach, I'm thankful for you. I know this was a hard one. It's hard to talk about hard things. A tragedy. It's hard to talk about a tragedy. It's a like tragedy. Those, yeah. But I appreciate that you guys bring bring your all. You bring your flaws and your biases and your deep concerns and your optimism and your education. And I just, I'm thankful for you. I hope everybody else feels as inspired by you as I do. Thank you. I feel um, a lot better about this conversation. I don't know why I was so nervous, but it yeah, was really helpful for me to talk through it all with you guys too, especially with some perspective. feels pretty true to life. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for, you know, I mean, I think you, you did a lot of research into like the, the really nitty gritty of it. So I appreciate that. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we are on agreement on this, you know, kind of to Cassie's point, I don't know that we really have a country if we, 
if we disagree too much on this point, you know, I think mm -hmm. you can nitpick at things and whatever, but like elections have to be fair and free. And I don't think you can look back on that day and say it was a net good for the country. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, interesting. And a good first, a first entry into season two of the Refiners <laughs> podcast. No holds barred. We're jumping yeah. right in. That's right. <laughs> You guys, thanks again for listening and for joining us. If you don't already follow us on Instagram and what I really, really would love to ask is if you haven't reviewed us five stars, write some words, that would be great. Some words about what you like about the podcast. It just does so much for us. And we love to hear from you and see what you want to know more of. Thank you Ernest so much Hemingway. for joining us. Ernest Hemingway says, if you want to be a good writer, you should write every day. So one day in your <laughs> writing, you should write a review of the reframers all the aspiring writers out there. All right. We love you. Bye, everybody. See you next time. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 